0: here's the big thing though that the book does nail which is sega's advantage which was both their desire and ability to go edgy and dangerous both in approach and image while nintendo played it safe the edginess allowed sega to jump out extremely quickly so as always thank you for joining me enjoy the podcast kick back and relax the force is strong and is with us always and never forget
1: we have hope
0: Rebellions are built on hope. They've no
1: idea we're coming. Take hold of this moment. The force is strong.
0: Make ten men feel like a hundred. We'll take the next chance. And the next. Time. You're all rebels on you?
1: I'm called the Jesse James Jesse, aka The Bizzle Oh, The Bizzle, thank you <laughs> The Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle Yeah The Bizzle
0: Alright, ladies and gentlemen of The Bizzlecast Welcome back to The Bizzlecast Here for my second edition of The Bizzlecast Book Review Which I've already renamed to The Bizzlecast Book Club Basically because I realized that we're doing more discussion That is launched from these books Rather than, you know, doing a traditional review of these books So in the first Bizzlecast Book Club. I talked about Masters of Doom, uh, which was a book about uh, id software, John Romero, John McCormack, the guys behind Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake, and basically the inventors of not only the modern first-person shooter, but the modern computer game and pushing technology um, to unbelievable limits that we are still seeing reverberations of today, but also just the amazing story behind these young, brilliant mavericks who nevertheless had lots of personal issues, got famous and rich way too young and were kind of like rock stars in, in their own world in the early to mid 90s um, and how that played out uh, it was also one of the first uh, audiobooks I ever read um, or listened to a couple years ago narrated by one of my faves Will Wheaton um, and I actually framed it around mostly a talk with my dad who got me into computers and who fed my computer habit games and otherwise and it was awesome uh, but I always knew the follow up was going to be console wars uh, with Ethan one of my main contributors my senior Video games contributor and one of the two members, along with Austin, of the uh, Awkward Controller series about video games. And Console Wars, uh, subtitled Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation, was a book that came out in 2014 by Blake J. Harris. And it follows a uh, businessman, Tom Kalinsky, who was recruited by the head of Sega of Japan around the time that the Sega Genesis was up and coming and wanted to expand heavily into the U.S. Um, and made him the head of Sega of America. And while it's from the perspective of Kalinsky and Sega, it also details the rise of Nintendo and the battle between the two in the in 1990s, as well as the internal conflicts uh, between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, the cultural differences that went on, uh, the cultural changes uh, in the United States around that time having to do with Mario and Sonic and and the two big companies, Sega and Nintendo and ultimately why Nintendo who was behind for a few years, behind Sega because of their great edgy marketing Nintendo obviously won that battle, ended up the stronger for it ended up having to compete as they do today with Microsoft and Sony but it would never have happened without this amazing story about the battle in the early 90s between Sega and Nintendo and so you get some great video game and cultural history and ethan and i have an amazing discussion about it and we do talk about the book and tell some stories and anecdotes from the book um but we don't spend too much time you know summarizing the book you guys should go read it you can also look it up online it's called again console wars by blake j harris highly recommend the audio book as well is excellent um and has actually uh, been licensed by seth rogan and evan goldberg um to be made into a film adaptation I don't know if that's going to happen They do do a very funny um, intro to the book And sort of a prologue um, But this is a story that was written As a story and not just a nonfiction fiction book it, it, you, If you just picked it up as we talk about You might not know if it's fiction or nonfiction Because the writer, Blake J. Harris Tells it um, almost like sort of an epic novel This battle between these two titans um, And is based on tons of interview and research But reads more like a novel Than a traditional nonfiction book So I'm going to save the rest for our podcast Podcast. Ethan and I uh, basically started talking about it before I was sort of officially recording, and I was eventually like, you know what, let's just start recording and, and go into it. So I wanted to do this little short intro to give um, some context, and uh, as I lead in, you're going to hear Ethan tell his story about um, he's much younger than me about uh, you know getting to play his mom's Game Boy Advance a- as a youngin, and now you know leading into him being a major uh, fan and player, um, even competitively, of video and computer games. We're going to talk about all that we're going to talk about sega and nintendo the evolution of games um over the years and the cultural impact and all that good stuff so thank you for joining me on the second edition of the bizzlecast book club and let's lead right into ethan okay man so just in order to get some uh Context about your experience uh, being, you know, uh, you know, a a kid of the 21st century, basically. Um, And I I know that you know, we talked about your first experience being with 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 Nintendo. So tell me about your your early video game experiences, um, and we'll kind of lead from there into. I I guess we'll sort of go backwards in time from there and contextualize it. And I'll tell my story as we kind of time travel backwards. So tell us your sort of early experiences with with video games, um, specifically Nintendo, and, and we'll from
1: there yep sure so um a couple of basic boring pc games which then led to me having a pokemon game and a game boy uh and then i was always like a generation behind as far as like the technology went until high school Mm -hmm. so it went from a game boy Mm -hmm. to 2008 eventually having a ds Uh, which then led to a 3DS actually on release Mm -hmm. a year before high school, but uh, with a 360 coming a year later, but the 360 was at the end of its life cycle, so it was basically already behind. I was going to have a, like, the one was coming out, like, a year later. So I was was behind there, because I didn't actually get a one until uh, like, second year of high school. And First year of high school I got a PC, so at that point I had finally sorta caught up, but I wasn't fully up to date. Which eventually led to by junior year of high school I was fully caught up and at the current generation.
0: Yeah, it's fun it's funny you say that, man. Not only did I get a DS in two thousand eight as well. I also got a PS2 in 2008, so I was behind on both generations, and I never owned a console before. I briefly had a Sega Game Gear, which we'll get back to, uh, as a kid, okay. uh, but I don't think it lasted very long. I don't remember what happened to it. But I never had a Game Boy, never had a Nintendo. We were allowed to have computers and computer games in my house, but no, no console. So I was always playing at a friends' house. Uh, but I, I was working at a camp in 2008. You know, I was well out of college at that point, and we, you know, th- there was a lot of like long, boring nights with nothing to do. So we drove to like the nearest town. I got to use DS, and there you go. We we did the um uh is it Wi Fi or Bluetooth? You know that you can do when you're like we used to play Grand Theft Auto against each other wirelessly
1: on the uh, oh on the, on the DS's. Mm-hmm. It's um it's download play. It's DS download play is what it's called.
0: What's what's the protocol though? What, what what's the is it use like basically local Wi
1: Fi essentially? It, it, it's some it's some local peer to peer connection. Yeah yeah yeah.
0: It's not Bluetooth yeah, though. Know, it's way better. I'd, than I'd have
1: to I'd have to Google it, but it's some. Well, actually, it's not Bluetooth specifically. It's some form of infrared, is mm-hmm. what it is. We t- um,
0: we would try and stretch it far because he was like in a cabin that was like a, at least yeah. a few hundred feet away. I think we got it a few hundred feet, and it would still work. Uh, yep. Yeah. And we would push it, but anyways. So that was kind of new for me, and then uh, I had to move back home briefly, uh, and probably got a job, and so I was like, all right, I'll get a PlayStation 2. I can't afford a PlayStation 3, and then in 2012, I got a PlayStation 3, so I was behind. So me having a PlayStation 4 now is the first time ever that I've owned the console of the generation, and maybe we should just define this for people who might not know what we're talking about, and we talk about generations. So we'll start defining some terms. And when we talk about being a
1: generation behind, what are we talking about? So when you when you mean a generation behind or a generation ahead or current gen, it's whatever is the commonly connected software that these companies develop for. So or, or sorry, not software, hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, so if like the current generation now is the PS4 line, the Xbox One line and whatever hardware you require to run the current uh, generation of PCs. Or what and whatever else you want to extend that to. If you want to extend that to the Nintendo Switch and the Wii U, you extend it to the Nintendo Switch and the Wii U. You want to extend that to the new quote, 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 air quotes, new 3DSs and the 2DSs. Like that, that, that's sort of thing. That's the generation versus, say, the DS Lights. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that's what you're going for. Um, or the DSs versus the Game Boys. Like that would be the difference in generations.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, again, <clears throat> as someone who grew up. With computers uh, and who was modding computers as a kid, um, obviously I would you know do a full upgrade occasionally when my parents can afford it and would let me, but I was also adding hard drives and RAM and video cards and sound cards and so forth. Um, so this, this was kind of new to me when I started getting into consoles, that there's this big release every, it's usually what, five, six, seven years in the, in the video game world generally. And one of the, one of the um, uh, sort of... Which is long, by the way. Which is long. Um, but what, I think one of the interesting themes, man, to talk about, and you and I have talked off mic as you've read the book and I reread it, is sort of Sega and Nintendo both kind of got stuck in their ways. But what's interesting is Nintendo has remained stuck in their ways, but their ways are successful, and Sega got stuck in unsuccessful ways. Um, and, you know, I always joke about Nintendo being kind of conservative, playing things conservatively, not politically, you know what I mean? Like, um, right. like you know, always underproducing instead of overproducing, you know, uh, creating a tight market, supply and demand, um, slow to innovate, focusing less on being the best technology, um and more on, you know, the best games, uh and their image and so forth. All these things we're gonna get to with Sega. But I think it'll be interesting as we go back to see how little Nintendo has changed in some ways until now with the Switch. And so just to tease guys, we're we're just giving some modern context just in case you're not, you know, at all steeped in the lore of Sega versus Nintendo um in in the late eighties, early nineties. Um and then we're, we're gonna jump back and then in the end, hopefully It will lead naturally back to the present for our you know, for our closing um uh, talk about, you know, what has changed and what hasn't changed. And I think, you know, uh, one maybe our final topic, ETH, just to tease now um, and give us an endpoint is sort of the way in which Nintendo has really started to innovate in new ways with the Switch and everything around the Switch, but also drawing from their, their past. Um, so everyone's familiar with Nintendo, right? I mean, everyone's played a Nintendo system of some sort. And as you and I have talked about extensively, and anyone knows anything about the video game industry... Nintendo hasn't dominated the um, non-portable console market, um, other than the Wii, which we maybe we'll get to. It's not in the book, guys, because you know we're talking about the '90s. But other than the Wii, Nintendo has made a lot of their money on portable systems, right? Ethan, I remember you telling me. I think you said like your first like real experience of of deep diving was was Pokemon on your mom's yeah. Game Boy.
1: Yeah. So I had a I had a I had, my mom had a Game Boy for whatever reason um a game boy advanced the big ah the big, but that's the, nintendo's brilliant the, the elongated they get the elongated parents PS. they get the moms yep and then um and then a friend of mine uh gave me the pokemon game and uh mm-hmm. i it, can you can you it. can you encapsulate that memory
0: of you know, you still love Pokemon, and you're definitely the guy that can still play like old school Pokemon and love it. You don't give a shit about the graphics; you just like the good yeah. Pokemon games.
1: I, I boot, I, like I, I have the, I have the, the that first Pokemon game on my phone at any given time that I can emulate and play. I just, like, I just do it for fun. Like, I boot it up, I can be like, yeah, I can play this one. At-. Um,
0: and do, do you have a, a a specific memory of, um, like? Okay, let me ask you some specific questions. Did your parents limit your time with
1: video games early on? Hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. Weekends only was the first. First grade all work, first uh, mm-hmm. weekends only. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing.
0: Now it's interesting. First it's interesting you start with Pokemon. This is similar to my experience playing uh, the old school RPGs we talked about in our last podcast. In that, in both cases, you can literally play one game for hundreds and hundreds of
1: hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and for, and for me, who only had that one Pokemon game. Right uh and anybody who knows pokemon knows that you only have one save mm-hmm. you'll get multiple saves i was i i restarted these pokemon games for the hell of it which is seems like pokemon suicide for a lot of people mm-hmm. um but for me it was like that's all i could do is that if i was bored i could restart the game and like try it a different way
0: mm-hmm. um, and by the way um Start talking about ways in which Nintendo is very conservative and and uh, slow in some ways, but also extremely innovative in others. Many, many, many people within and outside of Nintendo thought Pokemon was going to be a disaster, and there was no way Westerners would ever be into it. It was like totally yeah. a shocker that it became like the best-selling yeah. game in the world.
1: Yeah, like, like straight, it, it, like without those games, like Game Boy would have lost to Game Gear entirely mm-hmm. too. Which is, which is what's insane about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it's, it's why Pokemon has never left the portable market, except for like a few specific instances early on and slightly on later on, until now, when it's coming to the Switch later this year. So,
0: so did, do, do you think that you're... And then I, well, I'm going to start working back to, to the, the book and the time period in question, but... <sighs> Did you consider the fact at the time that you were playing a portable device or it was just a video game system that was, like, available to you?
1: It was it was what was there and it, it was mm-hmm. mine. That's what was important about it. That was it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really – like, I, I could access the computer mm-hmm. when it was off or when it was – there was something going on. But that was it. Like, like if if, if the, someone else was on the computer, if I couldn't access the computer, if I wanted to play video games – during the weekday because I wanted to hide it and blah, 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 That was the best way to do it, and that's what I did. Um, plus, it was just what I invested in, so that's what I did. I just kept investing in it.
0: So I have a two-part question, um, and this is going to lead us directly into the time period in question. So the first part of the question is sort of what were the, the sort of the first larger steps or what what were the first steps into the larger world that you took in terms of video slash computer gaming experience? And the second part, because I want you to just tell this whole narrative, is then when did you start getting interested in video game history of stuff before your time, both in terms of playing and just learning about it or talking to people about it?
1: Sure. So um, I think think two specific points in time is where it really – started to take off
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um the first was getting access to a computer where i could access the internet and have tons of information to have access to and as a young kid i
0: think i think we might need to date you because we need
1: 1999 okay 1999 oh you were
0: born right but when you so when you're playing the game boy advance how old and what year are we talking about i'm seven Mm -hmm.
1: so 2006 2006, yeah. And a year later is when the, 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 the DS Lite would come out, I think. And then internet, I mean, you know, I was using... And then the the Wii, the Wii would come out a year later. The Wii would come out a year later is basically where I'm at. And YouTube mm-hmm. was still fairly young. So were you using... Google, did, Google oh. didn't own YouTube yet. Google didn't own YouTube yet. That's how young I am.
0: Right. Well, to date me, I was using America Online in the early 90s, although okay. I got to direct internet very quickly. I, I, I quickly tired of that constrained oh, internet I got, experience.
1: I, I know what dates me. Yahoo Mail was still more popular than Gmail. That's what dates me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, um, I I finally closed my Yahoo account like a year or two ago. Uh-huh.
1: I'm surprised people still use Hotmail.
0: Oh, yeah. my My sister's husband who's a total like you know old school anti-tech guy i think still has a hotmail address um but so did you when you started using the internet did that lead you to start playing computer games, which, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, guys, you probably know that there is, or at least used to be, a vast difference between the types of games available uh, for uh, computers and and consoles. And when you were a kid, that was still kind of the case. Like, they weren't mass producing. I guess with Microsoft getting into the market, right, with Halo and stuff, st- st- so suddenly uh, you started getting cross-platform to computers from consoles. But that was never the case growing up. I think Final Fantasy VII and Tomb Raider were, like, two of the first Games to ever c- to cross successfully. Oh, yeah. So just talk about, yeah. So talk about you, you moving, learning the internet, using computers, starting to get into computer games, a- and your fascination with technology, because I think uh, this is leading towards you then learning more about the history of all this, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, just, just experiencing, well, being a young kid, watching a ton of YouTube, and then like moving into gamer centric basically put me in a position. Where I had was not was not used to pop culture at all, was not very experienced in gaming at the time, and uh, having access to a wealth of knowledge, especially when the internet was younger and wasn't it, like it still hadn't really really hit the pop mainstream culture that it has today. Mm-hmm. Like it was still like, like gamers were in a much bigger role, especially on YouTube and the internet as whole. Mm-hmm. At the time, so being in that position forced me to learn and adapt quickly, so I could be invested and enjoy more content on the internet. Um, which basically went from Flash Player games to Steam mm-hmm. to, to to following that mm-hmm. with more and more things. And I think my first real dive into beginning the history of games was Portal, and then back to Half Life, and then from Half Life. To Zelda games, and like just from there, it's just like spread, 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 spread.
0: So, when did you realize that A, you were just generally into tech, and B, if you were gonna be a real quote unquote gamer? if you could get something on the computer, you kind of need, you know, like, let's be honest, uh, this is to you and mostly to the Bizzlecast listeners, because if you guys watch Twitch, if any of those games are available on computers, those professional streamers have like $5,000 computers. They're not playing on the PS4 unless it's like Horizon or an exclusive or something like that, right? Right. I mean, but but I never saw that coming growing up. I mean, I never foresaw that people would still be, that we would still be pounding on these barbaric little, you know, console d-pads so many years later i and never it, thought that would happen
1: it, a lot of people in the industry thought that too around 2010 when smartphones and ipads took off mm-hmm. like a lot of people thought that, that was good like that was gonna end and then the ps4 and xbox One were so successful that everyone jumped ship and like or not jumped ship but like pulled back their um their worries and like fully went in on the console market mm-hmm so um.
0: so uh, by the time you started having access to computers learning about computers was it already uh, again I'm uh, you know my my knowledge of, of the transition let's say from 2000 2004-2005 Basically from 2000-2010 It's very hazy Because I was in college And then I was working in the city I wasn't doing anything Having to do with gaming I was only using computers for work I didn't have any types of games Anything like that um, And so I, It was like I suddenly woke up And saw that the technology Was changing And that The computers were You know Making a huge comeback Because you could get All these great games On the computers And you wanted it Because of the graphics performance and then, we, and then now you can stream And you want to use a computer And all that stuff That didn't used to be the case um, And so So, uh, you know, it was sort of a re uh, learning process, I guess, for me about, you know, where technology had come in terms of gaming. So, I guess what I'm asking you is, and I want to launch back into the, the, the history, like, by the time you really started using computers for all sorts of stuff, was that, was it fully symbiotic, for lack of a better term, at that point, where, like, you had access to the games you wanted on the computer and it was just a matter of whether you could afford the computer and so forth?
1: Not quite. I was still very limited. A, I was young, so I played not quite the same things that people were interested in, and also some uh, limiting uh, parental uh, authority uh, changed what I could play. Um, so while I was able to watch things like COD and Counter Strike, and watch like the shooters that really started to push the medium especially for live streaming and YouTube in general, like push that boundary. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still playing Wizard 101, a little kid's cheapo World of Warcraft and uh, Team Fortress 2. Mm -hmm. Because that was, A, it was a free shooter and B, it could run on my DDR2, two gigabytes of RAM, uh, no graphics processor, cheapo Intel processors
0: interesting interesting um okay so i think i need to i need to give you my part of the story because i grew up in that era and so this will be like us jumping in the time machine so when i was a kid right I, of course, I wanted the thing I couldn't have, right? And all my friends had a Nintendo and or a Sega. And so I would always play when I go to their house. I never was allowed to have it. My parents smartly got me, a, got me a computer really young. They got me like a high-end Apple II when I was like pretty young kid. Um, and it was a very smart move by them. Um, I still, you know, of course, desire to, the, the consoles. But interestingly, man, I <laughs> very quickly became a computer snob without realizing it. Because back then, as I mentioning there were not a lot you couldn't get platformers on computers, but we had and this where the Masters of Doom connection comes in we had strategy games, we had role playing games, and we had first person shooters. None of which were available on the pathetically low powered consoles. And maybe we'll talk later about how consoles are still kind of pathetically low powered. But they were really pathetically low powered compared to computers back then. What you could get with a twenty five hundred dollar computer, no way it was going to be able to run Doom. Now, eventually those games, you know, did get ported, but at the time it was it was never going to happen. And so I felt like I got a mouse, I got a keyboard, I got a fucking joystick for Flying TIE fighters around, you know, like I felt like I had the best gaming system and I did, you know, but like, let's talk about the conception of the console just philosophically, and this will lead into the Sega Nintendo battle. So, having read the book and obviously your experience with both consoles and computers. Why do you think something so basic with so few controls and so little processing power became so popular um, in the '80s to the point where it dominated the gaming industry for almost 20 years before now we see computers making a comeback?
1: Sure. So uh, I think the I think the primary thing is that uh, as as the book shows off is it tells us like the that the arcade market is what was really like taken off. And then when the arcade market st- started to fail a little bit because of lack of interesting games, um, and the general need to stop, everyone needed to stop putting in their quarters into a machine because they felt like they were starting to get ripped off a little bit. You nailed it. You nailed it. Nice um, the, the idea that you can buy your own entertainment system and then play it from the leisure of your home without having to walk down the street to the arcade store uh, helped help credence with A, parents probably eh, sick and tired of having their kids ask them, hey, can you give me five more quarters? And uh, Also, just in general, the prices back then for some of these systems were not too bad, actually, if you think about it in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's just jump were, in
0: there. Let's jump in there. That's a great they, point. They
1: were, did consoles for the time, if, if, you, if you match dollar per dollar value without inflation... Is is cheap in the idea for the for a console at the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been that long that inflation has been that influential for it, because um, we're only talking thirty years. But I, I can I can give
0: you those numbers roughly. Um, yeah, the dollar has essentially doubled since the beginning of the Clinton administration in the early nineties. Okay,
1: so so if we were to if, so four hundred dollars for a console is actually. Still reasonable.
0: Right. And one of like the first this. things Sega did, so let's just get into it, man. Because, guys, so, um, Ethan, I, I didn't mention this to you because I knew this was going to happen. We were going to have more free flowing conversation. You guys heard that I, I did a, like a five to seven minute intro before this where I kind of did a very quick history of, of the actual book more chronologically and pointed you guys to some sources that you'll check out um, because we're not here to give you a summary of the book. We're talking about our experience mixed in with what we learned from the book and, uh, in the industry, but also you know our own life experiences and, and so forth. Um, so just to jump in though, directly with the console wars, one of the first things Sega did before they even got Sonic going, which is what, what launched them, I and we will get into Sonic versus Mario and sort of the image war between the, the between the two companies was try and out a lower price uh, Nintendo over and over and over again. So when it started, I believe both systems, I believe Nintendo was selling for like one ninety. 99 and Sega was selling for like 179, but it got to the point where you could get a Genesis for less than 100 dollars new, um, for like 95 bucks or like 100. We, we have Sonic in the box, right? which wasn't supposed to happen and tom kalinsky who's the american ceo and the and sort of the hero and main character of the story was constantly having to convince sega of japan to take short term losses for long-term gains which of course nintendo understands innately and which is why they won we'll get back to that so he was constantly having to beg them they're like we're gonna lose so much money dropping the price 20 bucks here 30 bucks here like we can't give them the game for 99 dollars." they're like yeah we're selling them the the, you know system so they come buy everything else You know what I mean? And so... So I guess what I'm saying to circle back, you nailed it with the with the quarters thing because let's be honest, if your kid's pumping twenty bucks, thirty bucks a quarters a week or more, you know, you get a Sega for three weeks worth of of arcade games, you know, and games back then were like twenty, thirty bucks, and so if you double everything, ninety nine dollar system, that's two hundred dollars, two hundred dollars for a sixteen bit system, which back then was brand spanking new with a game, that's two hundred dollars today, man. I mean. Right, I mean, other than Nintendo's portable systems, that that's cheap. That's really, really cheap And Nintendo, uh, you know, it took a while To start matching That strategy, they really didn't Want to um, And uh, and if you look at The sales numbers um, Nintendo never really Again, until the Wii um, Which you might have to talk about because the reason the Wii Was so successful was because it did something Brand new that had never been done before um, But uh, for the most part Nintendo's sales numbers dropped With each, uh, relative to the market with each new system, first it was Sega, and then Sony, and then Microsoft, you know, so first there were two, and then there were four, and then there were three, and so forth. Um, But, uh, so the price war was one of the first things that happened, and so it just, it became too... Um, as you pointed out, um, and I'm just kind of expanding on. It became too impractical to keep pumping quarters into these machines when you could just buy the games and own them, and, and you end up saving money in the end. Plus, you get the kids, you know, at home. It's safer. You're not driving them around, right? There's lots of lots of practical reasons. You also have to look sort of historically at the growth of suburbia in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know what I mean? Um, things got further spread out, and just the economy changed. Um, but let's not forget, man where nintendo had their first success yeah 100 um which was donkey kong yeah, which was donkey the, Kong. which was yep. in the arcades
1: yep so yep they so put it, they put it in the arcades yeah. and then uh but, but that was to solve specifically that was to solve the lack of the issue that arcades weren't arcade boxes weren't selling because people were kind of done with the fad mm-hmm. and then they kind of took off from there because they because they finally made a game that was interesting again Mm-hmm
0: so just a quick sidebar about the book guys um if you didn't listen to one our previous podcast which is the the author of the book um blake nelson Blake nelson what's his name again why do i keep forgetting his name blake harris sorry blake j harris um Is very open that while he did Extensive research and interviews And all the major facts and character portrayals Are are very accurate from all I can tell From all accounts He definitely embellished some of the dialogue um, In order to make it very conversational And and feel like a movie, right? It feels like you're reading fiction Even though you know it really happened And the facts are there to support it Um, But it's just an interesting experience Especially when you're listening to the audiobook uh, With a guy who's very, very lively And takes on the personas and stuff it's, it's quite entertaining um, pretty much unmatched for nonfiction that I've read normally you can tell when it's fiction nonfiction if you jumped in with this it's it, it is told like kind of an epic tale of you know corporate competition and personal rivalries and, and all sorts of stuff so that's just one thing guys that's a little aside about the book um, and so you should just sort of take that with a grain of salt but the other thing Ethan is I think the reason I love the book and I realized this more on the second time Isn't the main narrative, but all the anecdotes we get all the little stories, right? All the little like the time they were testifying before Congress to try and prove that they weren't, you know, peddling violence to kids. And the Sega guy, like, accidentally blamed Sega instead of Nintendo.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, because he, he was just so nervous in the moment. And there's, like, a Freudian slip. And, and yep. you know, and and when this, after they had the Sonic delay, they were going to try and, like, pump up Sonic by having it in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and the Sonic balloon, like, exploded, right, or something like that. I mean, they're, like, all yeah, these crazy... Yeah, they, they said, they
1: got, they said it, you know, like it popped or something on a pole or whatever.
0: But what, the thing about life... Guys, in in business, you know, business just magnifies all the insanity of life. But the thing about life is karma kind of exists. And you do have to kind of, though, get lucky in times. And so while Nintendo definitely deserved to win against Sega for reasons that we're we're about to go into, Ethan, I think it's fair to say Nintendo also got some breaks at the right times, and Sega definitely got some bad breaks at some some bad times. I'm going to give you an example of this maybe we just start telling some stories and then our interpretations we're talking about donkey kong right so you know you don't think about this as a kid but looking back it's obvious you're like oh that's king kong that's you know it's it's i mean they call him donkey kong it's obviously king kong so what happens well universal studios sues nintendo in the 80s for all they're worth for stealing their copyright problem is they didn't have a copyright on king kong and on top of that the judge uh who was presiding over the case decided that it wasn't it, it was other than the kong name in being vaguely of the same species there wasn't enough of a connection to make a case and not only did he dismiss the case but he forced universal to pay nintendo millions of dollars in damages for dragging them through this and who was the man that um brought them through that um but uh what was his name lincoln um he's in the book a lot um yeah, he and, is, is and, and and he eventually yeah, he eventually
1: becomes the the co president correct yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, Link, uh is it andrew lincoln so it was, no, yeah it's so there were two main guys. So the lawyer's name, last name was Kirby, which is where we got the name Kirby uh, for, the, for our cute little pink friend. Um, and, uh, and But the business side of that whole lawsuit was was this guy, Andrew, Andrew Lincoln or something. I don't have it in front of me. And he ended up becoming, along with the, I guess, son-in-law of the CEO, right? Of, Howard. Howard. Howard Lincoln, Howard. right. Howard Lincoln. And... He worked alongside um, the, son- the, 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 the Japanese guy who ran Nintendo of America at the time was the son-in-law of the CEO of Nintendo, essentially. Yep. Yeah. But Lincoln was the main guy because he was the American, you know, the way Kalinsky was for Sega. And their personalities very much represented the companies. Lincoln was very buttoned up; he was very together. He never lost his cool. He always expected to win. Kalinski was a bit more fiery, a bit more emotional. He always wanted to push the envelope. And, and their two personalities really ended up driving uh, the company's approaches. Um, and uh, you know, uh, and in both cases, the you know what what's, what you guys have to understand out there is that all of these companies are based in Japan or, or Asia of some sort. And so... Especially back then when communication Wasn't as fluid as now and in, in cultural Understanding I mean it's still Such a huge gap in cultural understanding between East and West obviously in the world but it was Greater than we didn't have email Calls were expensive there was Tons of flying back and forth very Little cultural understanding no one could speak English from Japan and vice versa And so it was a constant Battle of American and Japanese pushing One another um, but then there Were also battles within Japan Ethan I wonder If you could being a Nintendo expert could talk a little 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 bit about your understanding of these sort of um they almost have these little fiefdoms um little mini kingdoms within these giant uh, japanese corporations where they they fight over various things at least that's how it's portrayed in this book and what i've read about nintendo um and that's why when um uh guys like um uh, uh uh miyamoto rise to the top that's very remarkable, you know, and he's yeah. he's worshipped as a god like I don't think he can go out in public or at least he couldn't for a while. He was such like a superstar, but for the most part, there was a lot of jostling, more so in Sega than Nintendo, but it definitely happened in both, um, and the Americans couldn't understand that, because that's not how American business philosophy works, but Japanese business philosophy is much different, as you might imagine, um, having v- very different histories. So, well, let me just ask that question, man. Be- before we go Nintendo versus Sega, what was your feeling about the... Not the not the sort of way it was portrayed, but like, what, what was your understanding of of the dynamic between the Japanese side of these two giant companies in in the early nineties and in the American side? Was it? Um, I, I'm sure you expected some conflict going in, and you knew some stuff, but did did, did it surprise you how much like almost daily conflict there was between uh, Sega of America, Nintendo of America, and and their Japanese counterparts?
1: Yeah, I mean, like so. What it seemed like, the, the, what I got from the, what I got from the book was a little more than just like, as Kalinsky was describing, it, he was like the pride of, like, like that Sega of Japan felt like hurt that the American who came in and changed up not only their whole, like, their whole business plan and how, like, and that, that he came in there and was being disrespectful, mm-hmm. and that he actually, like, it actually, the plan worked out so much so mm-hmm. that they felt they felt like their pride was gone because they not only, like, had their whole, like, direction shaken up, but they also had their, like, stature shaken up because Nintendo, or Sega of America was making more money than Sega of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they felt, they, they felt uh they, they they took a hit to their pride, but then there was also i think there was also just this idea between both but like on both sides where it was uh, that they could not get over their by bi- their by bi- international audiences and that since a decision had to be made almost unilaterally almost all the time it had to, if the decision was made it was unilateral so it would affect both countries and so both companies had trouble with this internally because they couldn't ever it was so hard to come up with the same idea or an idea that would work uh unilaterally it was just so hard they couldn't ever they couldn't they almost never agreed on anything and so Mm -hmm. both companies i imagine ended up trying to say okay well this works for us so we 're going to do this, and then it would not really think about how it's going to affect the other the other country
0: absolutely and, and there's you know there's this there's this sinking feeling you have from the very beginning of the book because the very first major scene in the book is so Tom Kalinske – okay. Tom Clancy wasn't just any American businessman, okay? Tom Clancy saved Mattel, which was by far the most powerful toy company when I was growing up in the 80s. But what I didn't know was that Mattel, who did Barbies and Hot Wheels and He-Man, Masters of the Universe, and all these giant things that were like, you know, everything my parents bought me was like, Mattel, 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 they were in a fucking shitstorm uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, and not the good kind. And he saved, I mean, he saved Barbie, like he was the guy who turned Barbie from... From the one blonde haired big boobed Barbie To like all the different Barbies I grew up having all the d- different Barbies But that was just starting man Like before that it was like just the one Barbie And you know they talk a lot You know and you say, okay, well, why, why would the CEO... This is, again, the first m- major scene. Why would the CEO of Sega track this guy down who's trying to be semi-retired on a beach in Hawaii with his family personally and basically beg him to come take over Sega of America, bring him out of retirement? He knows nothing about video games. And Ethan... I think this was so interesting. So I'll let you talk a little bit about this. What what, what, what was the connection that was that that he what did Nakamura um, that was his name right Nak Naka Nakayama? Sorry, what did Nakayama. yeah Hayao Nakayama, uh, CEO of of Sega of Japan. W- w- like, what did he see in Kalinsky that that m- made him w- want to hire him? In your interpretation,
1: Uh is very much the the uh, the in the ring boxer who's not going to sit. Like take take a take a seat for four rounds and then come back in the fifth and slug it out. He's very much the guy to just slug it out, uh, just just get moving in the first round. And so uh, he probably saw that he, he probably saw in Kalinsky the the will to not only become the the, the head of a video game uh, company, but also the 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 one to be able to learn enough to turn their, their ship around because their ship their ship was definitely sinking. Um very much so and if Sega had never gotten out of the console business, they would have been they would have been bankrupt. Like very much so.
0: And uh, and, and Kalinsky understood and, and this is something I learned in the music industry and this is all gonna connect, which is Everything in the entertainment industry is tied together by a simple principle that most people in all parts of the entertainment um, and you know uh, leisure industry uh, don't understand, which is it's all about telling stories it's all about narratives right Kalinsky didn't just see and they talk about this in the book Kalinsky didn't just see Barbie dolls they came up with like backstories for these Barbies right they wrote like whole Bibles for Sonic the Hedgehog. You might look at Sonic the Hedgehog and be like, this is just a crazy looking You know, um, a character that, you know, somehow became popular and and there's an obsession with him and blah, 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 and the games are some fun and some are stupid. No, they came up with backstories for all these dumb characters, which we never even see, but it's important for the people behind them to create the stories. And when I was trying to launch new artists in the music industry, the first, like, hard lesson we learned was like, it's not enough that they're a good musician. They have to have a great story or we have to create a great story around it. And and, uh, Nakayama recognized that somehow in kalinsky and i said it was tragic man it's tragic because nakayama recognized that kalinsky understood how to tell stories and that it would translate to video games didn't matter if he understood the games he understood the selling part right he was a salesman kalinsky was an amazing salesman but also a great leader right and it's very reminiscent of another guy Who I'm going to be talking about uh, Next month, guys uh, With the 20th anniversary of the iMac um, And Steve Jobs coming back to Apple in 1997 Steve Jobs was an amazing businessman uh, Was amazing salesman He wasn't a traditional businessman Or, or tech geek like Bill Gates or, or like the guys at Google Like in fact, there's some accounts like Steve Jobs doesn't really un- didn't really understand technology a whole lot, and that led to problems, you know, with engineers and things like that. He saw the product and how to sell the product. That was the brilliance of Jobs and reviving Apple. Kalinske was somewhat similar. Now he was the anti-Jobs, um, as I've, I think talked about previously, in that he really inspired people in a positive way, whereas Jobs inspired people by getting on their ass and insulting them and so forth and running out the people who weren't you know smart enough inspired enough and couldn't handle his bullshit um uh w- whereas Kalinski was was a very inspiring when you say like a, a like uh he's a guy you want to go to bat for like women like for example women that work for him wouldn't take long pregnancy leave because they were so loyal right like right. things like that yeah
1: yeah. Um, and, uh, and and, and yeah. I just wanted to I want yeah. to grab one thing you said. Mm-hmm. I think Sonic fans don't obsess over Sonic. I think Sonic fans rel- are religious fanatics for Sonic. Just, yeah. just wanted to yeah. clarify yeah.
0: that. Yeah. 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 And what's interesting is they probably researched the lore. That's not even you know what I mean. That's like. It's yep. like researching Dark Souls lore. It doesn't exist. It's all in people's imaginations, right? Uh, yeah. But there is enough information out there. But, the, but you understand the point I'm making, is there is a connection between Barbies and Sonic the Hedgehog, which is telling a story and getting people invested in characters, in the physicality of the characters, in the backstory of the characters, in the world and the environment of the characters, and, you know... With, <laughs> It, I mean, do you remember the portrayal of Sonic that they got initially? The drawings and so forth they got from Japan of what Sonic looked like. He was like,
1: he yeah. was like covered yeah, in spikes. He was, he was yeah, he was he was, he was, he was an emo, edgy, like kind of guy you'd find next to a like a, a a chopper motorcycle. Yeah, I was gonna say he's like and, a, he's like a biker and, dude. Yeah, he was a biker dude, and then he had a he had a, a pimpy hoe next to him.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's Japan. You got to have a big anime girlfriend even if yeah. you're a hedgehog. Uh-huh.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Yep. And they completely change him. And uh, to, to complete my thought before, uh, I don't want compl- to completely but to tease a little further what I was saying about being tragic, th- the double tragedy is that Nakayama recognized Tom's brilliance. Kolinsky's brilliance and empowered him and constantly defended Tom's decision, even though everyone in Japan never wanted to do what Kolinsky wanted to do. And as you hinted at earlier, uh, or more than hinted at, which was that some of the resistance was actual disagreement, and some of it was just jealousy and not wanting the Americans to be in charge, right? And so Kalinske had to fight for what he believed in, and he was going to stay and keep fighting as long as Nakayama went to bat for him. But ultimately, what happened with Sega um, is what happened with him and Mattel, which is Mattel did the same thing. They promoted him to CEO, and then the board completely disempowered him his ideas and his innovations and so he left and so as long as the book is it's really bookended by that meeting in the beginning where you've got this big powerful japanese businessman who recognizes the brilliance of this american businessman and says i'm gonna to go to bat to you i don't care what any of my people say if you want to do it we're gonna do it and through most of the book ethan he's pretty
1: loyal about it i would say right nakayama is yeah yeah like, definitely and then like at the end it all kind of just breaks down
0: it breaks down and it doesn't break down on nintendo's side yeah and i I want to actually jump to nintendo in a second in comparison but i want to ask you a question because the biggest flaw in the book is that of 20 hours of book it's 17 hours of Sega kicking ass with occasional setbacks and then everything goes to shit. And we don't really get the full story. And I'm wondering if they if the author wasn't able to ascertain the full story. Eventually Nakayama stops going to bat for Kalinske even though they're rolling in money. So this will be a fun part where we get to interpret a little bit and not just you know parrot what's in the book because you guys should read it. We're not going to tell you all the fun stories. There's a, unbelievably great stories in the book. But what was your interpretation of like what ultimately led to the breakdown based based on what what you read in this extensive account? Uh
1: for Which- six. Yeah. Go ahead. For, 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 first things first. Mm-hmm. Sega stopped being competitive in both markets. Maybe they were still being competitive in. Oh no, they yeah. controlled sixty
0: percent of the console market at um, like, but nineteen ninety four or so.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. What I'm saying. What I'm saying is th- that they started to let go of the the compet- the competition. At, at at the start, like as soon as they launched, um, what was it after the Genesis, um, Saturn or no? That was it. Um. What was the one after the Genesis? the one well, here's the other problem.
0: here's the other problem Sega tried to have their cake and eat it too they wanted to computerize the Genesis so they the Sega CD and they kept adding these like peripherals and then it was supposed to be the Saturn but then Japan was like we're not going to get you the Saturn in time so we're going to give you like another peripheral that's like a partially upgraded like semi 32 bit and then we're going to give you the Saturn you know what I mean and right. as opposed it, to Nintendo just, so that was Nintendo form. just waited and waited and waited until they were ready with their product.
1: Right. So, so part, of it, part of it is, is that, well, and, and that, that was never going to work for the American audience, the, 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 double, the double system thing. And so they, they, they stopped being, they, they made bad decisions for the American audience. That was the first thing. They, they made some bad decisions for the American audience versus where Nintendo just stuck to what they were doing and that was always already winning. So mm-hmm. they, just, they just kept doing it and they, they, they eventually took say out.
0: So, okay, so we've pointed out, you know, the, some of the important things. Lack of communication agreement between Sega of America, Sega of Japan, the jealousy of Sega of Japan uh, not having nearly the success of Sega of America, um, which, by the way, man, we should take a moment to talk a little more about, which is that. You know, the Japanese live on a very crowded island in the middle of the Pacific in a very insular culture and they're jealous of their neighbors like all cultures, right? So they were right. literally jealous of how well Nintendo was doing in Japan. They didn't really care about how well they were doing elsewhere. Nintendo wanted to do w- w- well everywhere, right? But so it it, it wasn't it, it wasn't pride of like, "Oh, their branch is doing better than our branch." It was more just it, it was really more jealousy of Nintendo, I think that was fueling it. I don't know if the author really addressed that enough. That was my interpretation. Yeah. Maybe. What I'm saying is th- th- they wanted to succeed in Japan because Nintendo was succeeding in Japan and America. Okay, and and sure. it, wa- it wasn't sure. enough that Sega was beating Nintendo in America. They had to beat them or at least compete with them in Japan and they weren't. The yeah. Japanese didn't give two shits relatively about Sega at that point
1: yeah so that, um yeah so 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 the the, the the fact that they stopped being competitive in america was a crucial mistake because as you and i have discussed as much as gaming is a much bigger pop culture thing over in japan there is a much bigger uh gaming audience over here in america and so by losing all by stop being as competitive as nintendo was and as just as playstation was coming in which is part of my other point like you you started to you lost a lot of your audience Mm -hmm. and once you lost a lot of your audience you stopped making as much money uh, which is crucial Mm -hmm. Um, and what definitely led into them stop producing consoles Um, and then that brings me to my third point Mm -hmm. which is Nintendo actually stepped up and started to be more competitive than they already were and started to be more um out there with the people like they started to take a different attitude and if the, as the book describes nintendo was the nintendo was the tortoise and S- sega was the, the hare and of course of course slow steady wins the race but the book then goes in to say that nintendo adopted a new strategy where they became just enough of the hair and just enough of the tortoise to always be around. And I think
0: think the other metaphor, I agree with that metaphor, but I also think it's the waking the sleeping giant thing as well. I think Sega stirred up competitive juices in Nintendo that they didn't realize they had because Lincoln – (laughs) Howard Lincoln at the beginning of the book is very different from Howard Lincoln at the end of the book. I mean, he still retains his composure and his sense of superiority, uh, earned superiority, but he gets way more up in Kalinske's face, both literally and you know uh, metaphorically as it goes along, and they really start upping their game because of Sega. They start reducing their prices. They start moving up their timetables, but they're not nearly as sloppy or haphazard. But Ethan... I want to jump to Nintendo. and Have you talk about the, the portrayal of Nintendo in the book? Because I think they did a great let job. Me with,
1: just, let me just finish. Let me just finish my last part of it, okay. which is okay. I, what, I have a bridge what, what, though is, before we get there. But go ahead. Okay, it's, it's 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 just simply that. Also, because PlayStation comes in here with a cheaper product and a better product, and basically pushes like they court both Nintendo and Sony, uh, like. So, so Sony's probably not doing it intentionally, but they they, they basically together they they pushed Sega out of the picture entirely because Nintendo had a better system and better games, and Sega uh, Sony had a better system and a more pop it was grabbing all of Sega's audience. So they basically collectively pushed Sega out of the picture uh, mm-hmm. due to the fact that due, 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 with combined with those other mm-hmm. uh, reasons that I said earlier. So,
0: Right, so here's, here's the big thing, though, that the book does nail, which is Sega's advantage, which was both their desire and ability to go edgy and dangerous, both in approach and image, while Nintendo played it safe and was, you know... what <laughs> I mean, calling Nintendo in the 80s and 90s Disney of, of video games could be an insult or a compliment, depending on where you're coming from, and they initially took it as an insult, but then when the government started cracking down, they were like, oh man, we're the Disney of Japan. We're our Disney of video games. We're good, you know? Sega's the one doing Mortal Kombat with all the blood. And so they actually started embracing the family friendly image. And I want to talk about the cultural gap. I guess what I'm saying is the edginess allowed Sega to jump out extremely quickly. And let me be honest, dude, and this is all about how old you are, right? The Sega Genesis became popular in the US, I believe, around 1991, right? Sonic was 91. Yeah okay I was 10 that's like perfect console age we all wanted Genesis we were over Nintendo by 1991 man all my friends had or wanted
1: Genesis's yeah. and, and then, and then, like, and then any, any, of your, any of your older peers at the time were also interested in the Genesis which if, if you know anything about older brothers older sisters mm-hmm. and I, I do because I, I have two younger sisters uh, and one of them who I grew up with like was was very attached to the things that i was getting into mm-hmm. so that like that that definitely also influenced the idea that it was like wait if the nintendo was the console for the younger kids and genesis is the kid's console for the older kids well the older kids are going to influence the younger kids to make them want to use their system not the, not their specific system
0: and, and guys i want you to keep in mind the story about ethan's mom having a game boy because that wasn't happening in the 80s and 90s, but because of the accessibility and the family-friendly image that Nintendo cultivated, it eventually led to uh, what culminated with the Wii. But, but even has happening before then, like with your story and other people's stories. Meaning, what was Sega's? You know, Sega's thing was. Their their big realization was like you know what we'll let Nintendo have the little kids we're gonna aim for the teenagers and the young adults like and that was a great strategy and let's be honest uh-huh. the majority of video games money wise sold today are to adults or to teenagers right not to kids because expendable income right I mean expendable income and just
1: like the more graphic things get the more the higher ratings things have to go
0: right and this was so. and remember Sega was operating before the government started cracking down and that's a, a right. part of the book that happens towards right. the end now masters of tomb it's a much bigger part because it you know the columbine shooting and all that stuff happened during during oh, yes. during its software and and all that and you know and they were straight up blamed for you know causing mass shootings um i mean they weren't prosecuted but you know they were essentially whatever um but the point being that that wasn't an issue yet so when they were like yeah mortal Kombat with blood sure why not and and kalinsky to his credit was always a little nervous about going like hard r on some of their games but the business opportunity was too much To you know, to 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 not take up, but ended up biting them in the ass in the long run because they were sloppy with all the games they were embracing, many of which were crappy or just you know edgy without actually being good. And so Nintendo continued to focus on good gameplay it's easy to just say oh nintendo's family friendly but let's be honest the thing that Nintendo has sustained nintendo from the console wars days of this book of the nes of the NES and the snes um to today is a very high rate of good accessible games that a lot of people can be into yeah. And so I, that was the shift I wanted to make. We don't have to shift completely to Nintendo or, or stop talking about your points, but I wanted to start bringing up the fact that, I think, again, with the reread, and me doing these podcasts with you and you teaching me and me getting into it and starting to learn the history, it was like, oh, Nintendo's disadvantage at the beginning of this book in this time period ended up being the advantage in the end, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, like, just, just to take it from like a personal, but also like, in this place exactly into the book, Nintendo, implement, like, just of their guarantee uh, um, of a quality stuff, Nintendo, for a long time, and they, they at a certain point they implement this in the book, I don't remember when, around what generation. It was during the SNES, though. Um, they start implementing on all of their boxes and all of their cartridges, and every game since Nintendo's ever released that has been an in-house Nintendo product has had a stamp from Nintendo that says... This is a Nintendo quality guarantee seal that states that this game is good and that is complete and that it is a, like it's, it's a it's a real Nintendo game. And by the way, and sorry, uh, no,
0: no, I just have to share this anecdote because I told the Donkey Kong one. Um, so that was a bit of luck, but the one that wasn't luck, that was really the brilliant move, was. So in the mid 80s, when they first started bringing this sort of prototype, uh, initial version of the NA- the Famicom over, there was like a, f- a good percent, a, s- a small but significant percentage of faulty units that got shipped out. And they spent hundreds of millions of dollars in their currency at that time to completely replace them for people for... It was like a recall as if it was poison medicine, right? I mean, even pharmaceutical companies weren't pulling drugs at that level, even though it was killing people. Like, they treated it like it was going to kill the people, and that immediately... They got more sales out of it because it showed that they were a company that was willing to take hits to make sure that people were happy and that the product was good. And they nipped that in the bud. And while, and dude, they've continued to have problems with initial product releases. I mean, the DS had problems, the 3DS famously had problems in the beginning, right? With the screen and the, uh, I mean, there was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, they always have problems with screens for some reason, and that sweat was getting into stuff with the, with the way the plastic was shaped. Yeah. Research the initial, none of, none of their
1: screens have ever been with having glass, which is both a blessing in the skies and a huge fall on Nintendo's part, but, uh, Anyway, yeah. You
0: know, anyways, the point is, Nintendo has had Nintendo has a reputation of never having technical problems. I mean, I lived through the era of blowing into cartridges because we thought that was a great idea, and, even though it made it worse,
1: right? Like, and, and, all, all the, the study that came out recently that said, oh, yeah, blowing into cartridges actually harms the cartridge, and everyone collectively on the internet agreed, no, it doesn't, you're a liar.
0: <laughs> well, dude, this was 87. There was no internet. Yeah with no one there was no one to tell us this stuff i mean the nightly news wasn't going to tell us if no no i i i know i
1: know i know no
0: no no, no, but what what i'm saying is if nintendo didn't address these things in the radical way they did it it was a smart decision each time it could have killed them for good because you can't now you know no man's sky can roll out their product over five fucking years because you can just download patches and we all have high speed internet so okay whatever you couldn't do that in the 80s right if you have a buggy game or a buggy
1: system it's over it is over like also something that genesis tried to really pull off which didn't really work was the internet right
0: but the point being nintendo did understand that customer service is key
1: yep and yep the nintendo power
0: magazine uh-huh. And the Power Magazine, rep- they, and they still replace stuff to these days. They yeah. won't replace anything faulty to these days. They set the precedent, but when they were the only king in town, and this is what I was, I'm was i always getting at, man, which is not an insult, which is that sometimes being consistent and a little conservative in your ways is good if it's working, you know? Like, yeah. we're going to lose $100 million now so that we can make a trillion 10 years from now, you know?
1: If it, if it, if it works, don't fix it. Mm-hmm like it, like i can't like for a lot of things in life, you just can't like state it any simpler than that mm-hmm. um so so one
0: thing that's very noticeable if you ever watch uh streamers online who you know stream uh nintendo super nintendo and genesis games is that let's put it this way from if you had to put a percentage between, if you put all the Sega Genesis, you know, famous Sega Genesis games in a pile, put all the famous Nintendo games in a pile, and we see what percentage of Nintendo games hold up versus what percentage of Sega games hold up visually or or in terms of gameplay, I mean, the ratio is so in favor of Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. Oh, 100%. I mean, Genesis games look awful. They play awful. And so, the, you know, the the... <laughs> What I think is interesting, though, man, is I think Sega was going to fail because they were putting out a crappy product, but they didn't even get far enough to fail because of the crappy product because of uh, how much uh, Sega of Japan sabotaged them. That was my interpretation. I kept waiting for it to bite them in the ass, but it never did because they bit themselves in the ass before that could even happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, what and like, like you hear like Lincoln talking about that in the book Mm -hmm. and he's saying one way or another they're gonna fail because we don't uh, they they don't have good games like it will be shown to the world that their games are awful at some point and it doesn't happen because Nintendo's forced to play that is forced to wake up as the sleeping giant um, for their marketing because of how say how much market share Sega took so like one way or another they were gonna fail but it just didn't. It, the way it happened is, is that Nintendo like fought back, basically instead of uh, instead of just letting Sega fail on their own. All
0: right. So, in an effort to get towards our final thing, where I just want to move to the modern day. So, what other? Thi- Let me put it this way: Are there any factors we haven't brought up as to why Nintendo? Um, th- ultimately crushed sega um or do you want to expand uh, expand on any of them um i just want to offer you offer you that
1: and then i'll, I'll try and I, bridge it I, I don't want to downplay the influence that the playstation had on the market because it definitely did have an influence uh as i said earlier like it, it's, it's not it's not it's not reason number three because reason number three it's like it it played its own part in taking down sega because as it as it was a better product with better games, like it, like all throughout the book, all throughout the book, the same quote keeps going up: "The name of the game is the game." Like PlayStation helped put a role in that because when like, to, and you can see this till today with, with between Nintendo, PlayStation, and Xbox. No, like very few, if anybody has two, if. Three, and even lower have three of, uh, like, on, are on all three systems. So, when you're buying only one system, you take away that entire household from your, from, from your product. And so, when you split up, but when you split up the market in this way, like, since Sega had the worst product and the worst games among the three, it was obvious what was going to happen. Hmm.
0: but do you agree with me that Sega's demise was inevitable because of the quality
1: gap but yeah you, that, you know I, yeah. I, I agree with that 100% that's yeah. what I'm saying they didn't have the software and they didn't have the hardware to back up what was happening and what was happening is, is that both of their competitors uh, especially Playstation because they basically came out of nowhere and in the book like, he's like Steve Race walks up on stage and he says 2.99 dollars 99 and then walks away like it was $100 cheaper, and it was a better product. Like, it, it, it's incredible. And we can see that We can see that being replicated today with the Xbox. It's, it's insufficient hardware. Microsoft doesn't put as much money into it, and they don't have as good of games. And it is the weakest of the three because Switch will soon overtake the amount of Xboxes that have sold most definitely. Mm-hmm. And if you combine and if if you combine with Wii U sales because technically this is still the same generation, we, they, they, Nintendo's already beaten Xbox. So let's, and, if let's, can, and if you can and if you combine the handhelds, like they they've really overtaken Xbox. Like it's it's just, it like like that, that's the most apt comparison I can compare it to because. Xbox is in such a losing position right now, and if they don't step up, like they'll they will it they will slowly move their marketplace from console to PC.
0: Why don't we? Would do you feel comfortable talking about the Sony aspect to this, the Sony twist to the story? Because I think that will be great. Because Sony was, I mean. Nintendo plus Sony was the demise uh, ultimately right uh, yeah, of,
1: yeah yeah that 's what I've been saying this whole time yeah.
0: right, no, but can you just tell a little bit of the, the Sony story?
1: yeah, I mean like because so, Sony
0: basically rejected both Nintendo and Sega in different yeah. ways at different times so,
1: so 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 the strategy that Kalinsky takes, who's the head who's the CEO of Sega of America, was to gather as many allies as possible in the fight against Nintendo primarily in those who were outdone by Nintendo or those who were ripped off or like left behind by Nintendo. Because those were the only people that were willing to to fight against Nintendo in the first place. So he recruited Atari, he recruited EA, he recruited um, who else did he recruit? He recruited a few other people. Mm-hmm. That is uh, four obscure names. But he recruited he recruited all these allies that would play and he 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 tried to go after Sony and for a while it was working because Nintendo was originally working with Sony for hardware stuff and then they back they, they backstabbed them and went to work for Philips. With to work with Philips for their hardware. Um and so for a while for a couple of years so, uh, Sony and Sega are on a joint plan to try to build a console together and uh the higher-ups just don't go for it at Sony. At least, well, oh, sorry. They they're they're they are they're skeptical at first. Then they then they let go and they try to let it happen and then Sega of Japan screws it up and says they're not willing to work with Sony on joint hardware and then it just breaks off. It just breaks up right. There. So it,
0: in, in amazing uh, another ironic twist of history. So, the- sega rejected sony and then sony rejected nintendo and nintendo ended up being on top of sega it's amazing it's amazing yeah and not only that the rejection of nintendo by sony they did what you think no one would do you think they'd be like okay we're gonna come up with our own digital technology nope <laughs> we're gonna just do more cartridges with the n64 and make it work for us because fuck them but we're gonna make great games and we're nintendo and so it's gonna work i mean you gotta appreciate the balls the thing is both nintendo of japan and sega were extremely stubborn i guess what i'm the interpretive part here is why does nintendo stubbornness keep working for them in the case of sega and other companies
1: it, it backfires uh, because I mean, well, Nintendo got in and owned ninety percent of the pie, and when you own ninety percent of the pie, you can take hits for a long time.
0: Right, right. But do you see what I'm saying? Like Nintendo, Nintendo digs in about certain things. But I guess yeah, what I'm saying yeah. is Nintendo picks the Nintendo has a higher batting average and, of digging in for the right and,
1: things, and, and and because and because none of their none of their decisions are a, are. Betray, betray, uh, betrayals of, uh, of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, Principle? consumer, consumer, c- consumer, consumer quality, consumer quality or consumer, um, well, no, but I'm, but like, let's,
0: okay. Hypothetical. The decision, I mean, let me be honest. You know, who was really pissed about the N64 not having optical discs Miyamoto was not happy yeah. about it and I read the I read another book just about Nintendo a few months ago sort of in preparation for this and just for my own knowledge when they talk more about it miyamoto was pissed about the cartridge i mean he had already designed in his head all these games that would never fit on a cartridge and he had to scrap them and redesign them and of course he ended up fitting it all on because he's a fucking genius and they've got the best engineers in the world you know there and so they made it work but i'm saying in principle that could have that could have ended nintendo because everyone else was going optical right
1: yeah they,
0: they so with Sony coming out with the best hardware, the best new controllers, you know, the optical discs, the 3D technology, Sega was done instantly and Nintendo, Nintendo survived. So let's start bridging to today. What, what, what are some of the aspects that allowed Nintendo to survive despite some bad breaks and some bad, arguably bad decisions or questionable decisions around that time about their hardware and so forth going forward?
1: The name of the game is the game. <laughs> right. No, I, mean, I mean, I mean that legitimately, though, because like, if you look at quality across the board, back then Nintendo had it like flat out, just flat out. They had it. You had you had some other stuff. So so like, eventually, when Sony gets there and they start working on it, like they do have quality, but uh, Nintendo had built a reputation around quality. Well, that's my question.
0: My my question is. With the massive success of the NES, the, I mean, the Super NES over, across the world ended up selling more than the Genesis. It also was around much longer, way longer. And let's be honest, three words as to what ultimately pushed the SNES over the top. You know where I'm going with this? Go ahead. Donkey Kong Country best-selling game up to that point ever. They printed, then he said they printed four or five million ahead of time with barely that many orders and uh, immediately sold out. And yeah. the guys who developed it, by the way, you guys might have heard of a little company called Rare. Yeah, yep. they pioneered, the, I mean, we were talking about the 3D, 2D uh, thing, right, with Octopath, but Donkey Kong Country was a very early version of, of doing 3D, 2D hybrid stuff and there's a there's yeah. a great scene where the rare guys let's be uh, so we should tell the story man nintendo worked with almost no one outside of japan for software and they were so impressed by the rare guys who were these two crazy dudes from england that they let them design as many games per year as they wanted they were they were pumping nope. out like 25 nintendo games plus per year that's how much they love these guys and when they showed them the uh the uh beta or alpha probably of donkey kong country you remember that scene
1: yeah, and, and he was yeah, like, and, "Oh,
0: is this going to be ready for like our next system?" He's like, "What are you talking about?" And
1: he's like, "No, this is running on 16-bit." <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, like, and not only that, it was beautiful and smooth as silk. I remember that game, man. I
1: remember yep. I was yep. like, I cannot it, believe. It, it goes back. It, go, it goes back to what I say so many times about video games, mm-hmm. which is, for the most part, regardless of your tools, like if you have the right amount of time, you can make it work. Better no like you can make it look better than it ever has before. You can make it run better than it has before, play better than it ever has before. Like you, you can. It's just the way the industry works. Is you like like and, and this just this just goes to cr- to, the, to the credence of the rare guys, like how brilliant they were, like like when you have these massive teams and they don't work out uh, versus these video games where you have so much time to make them and they look beautiful like it just goes into that credence that no matter what you no matter what you're working of no matter how much it like if you have the right amount of time it can get done and it will look beautiful
0: okay well look man this conversation we've had since the beginning and th- this book's a perfect bridge and we're going to continue having it so in the effort of wrapping this up and launching, you know, further discussions about this in the future, you knowing way more. Like, let's put it this way: I experienced Nintendo way before you were born, but since the late nineties, early two thousands, you know and have experienced way more about Nintendo. So. What are some things that we haven't brought up necessarily yet that you think? I mean, you've talked about, you know, naming the game is the game and, and quality control and that sort of thing. But what are some like more subtle things or things that people might not think about that you think are particularly brilliant? They don't have to be massive that have helped sustain Nintendo's uh, success uh, over all these years, other than just you know good games, family friendly, etc. Ah. Uh... You can take a moment if you think about that.
1: I think the innovation on their part is also pretty good for a lot of a lot of their stuff. Um, like some of the ideas that they put like like the ideas that they put into their hardware are really awesome because they try to innovate themselves every time they change. Uh kind kind of, like, kind of like with with music artists, they make they make one killer album and it's great, but then they try to reinvent themselves for their future albums and it doesn't really work out. With Nintendo, it's a mix of both of those things. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but each time it sells well because the idea of Nintendo's innovation is one of the things that defines them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like the GameCube having a handlebar. So you, it, and it, the, the idea that it was small enough that you could carry it around and just, it's portable. It's, it's a game, it's a home console, but you can pick it up and move it around. Mm-hmm. Or particularly the Wii and how the motion controls in the, as the as, is the main idea of the system and the, just the interactivity of just like the idea of buttons are no longer the standard way to play video games. Now motions that are detected can be the controls
0: mm-hmm.
1: like that. Those are two things that Nintendo has always built upon well it always led Nintendo credence mm-hmm. and Nintendo has used well, regardless if it's been successful or not. <clears throat> Nintendo 3D, yes, 3D. Um, whereas Microsoft, which tried to put out the connect, trying to mimic the, the actions of the Wii, because the Wii was so successful in its sales. Uh, because Microsoft was like, Hey, we should make motion control games too. Mm-hmm. And how horribly that flopped. Mm-hmm. um, is is just is one of those things that Nintendo has utilized and has successfully done over the years.
0: I agree with everything you said. And, you know, the N64 was a great system. Uh, the GameCube had amazing games. Um, and then the Wii, obviously, you know, was first to the market with real motion controls. And was able to capitalize greatly on it before people realized that it only had limited lifespan, essentially, or limited usage at least.
1: It but, had limited usage, but and, and it then backed it up with games, but which was right. the important thing.
0: But I want to stress what I said before, which was: let me just let, let me read you guys, you folks, some numbers. Ethan knows these, but this is important. This is important. Okay. NES sold. This is from Nintendo's own corporate website. The NES sold 62 million units. The Super NES sold 50 million units. The Nintendo 64 sold 32 million units. The GameCube sold 21 million units. Okay, so that takes us up through. uh, Let's see what year the GameCube would take us up through, like the early 2000s. Okay, that's not even. What I want to say. Hold on, that's not even in the top 15 best-selling things of all uh, um, consoles of all time. However, however. Between the Game Boy Advance and Game Boy, just hardware units, we're looking at over 200 million. The DS on its own, 150 million hardware with a billion million, uh, with a billion units of software sold. And then you get the Wii in 2006 or whenever it was, 100 million units sold. And the 3DS, another 73 million units. So the Wii in their portable systems is what saved the company ultimately. Um... But those are very different things. And they're lucky that the Switch, man, so we'll, t- we'll tie it up with, with what's going on now with Nintendo. Ultimately, they learned the right lesson, which is they excel at portable gaming, in my opinion. In my opinion, that's the lesson they learned, and they put everything on it, and now they've already sold, what, 27 million Switches?
1: Something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're going to pass the N64 in less than two years. They've already passed the yep. GameCube. They'll probably you're gonna pass the snes which was 50 million they'll probably pass the the nes at 60 million yeah.
1: there are reports of that the sales are going slowing down mm-hmm. but i feel like that's just because we're entering an odd period of between mm-hmm. now and black friday to christmas mm-hmm. so that's that mm-hmm. uh i think th- i think i think the switch is gonna have a, a better christmas this year than they did last year mm-hmm. um That's just me,
0: though. Interesting. Um, Oh, interesting fact. It's predicted that sometime this month or next, the PlayStation Four will pass the PlayStation Three at eighty-four million units, and the estimate PlayStation versus Xbox PS has about seventy-one to seventy-four percent of that market. Oh yeah, easily. So. Nintendo has done a couple things. They keep making different systems. They're not worried about having the best hardware. They have timed their release cycle, right? So that's staggered. So they're not going up directly against them in terms of of releasing it. But they're also now definitely not going up against them in terms of the consoles themselves. And let's be honest, man. Let's be honest. It's only a matter of time before people get sick of fucking PlayStation and Xbox controllers. But people aren't going to get sick of portable gaming. As you pointed out, the iPhone iPad gaming revolution never happened and probably never will. And and Nintendo realized that a while ago, and they're finally capitalizing on that. That's that's my assessment about why they're they're
1: succeeding right now. Yeah. Until until phones really start to take off, and the Razer phone is the start of this, but we're still we're still five years out from even like the real beginning right 10 years from now yeah we'll start to see like the super here's the thing the the super power of phones but like here's the thing
0: manual button and and pad controllers will always make sense for a portable unit but it's not doesn't make sense for home unit when we've got computers that can do so much more with the right. peripherals, right? And right. so that's the that's the reason the iPhone never took off, because no one was able to sell a company unit that people wanted for their iPhones and iPads to you yes. know to make them into
1: and, gaming units. And, and and funny enough for that the word you bring with the peripheral thing, that's the speculation about how this is gonna work is you're gonna be able to take your phone, plug it in like the Switch, and it's gonna go to a screen and you'll be able to use it like a computer. Yeah. That that that's where this is supposedly going. And the, the Razor phone, my mm-hmm. phone, can already do that. You could set it up like it's a Raspberry Pi, which is a little computer, mm-hmm. and plug it into a screen and it can work. Mm-hmm.
0: So you so, know you know how uh, you and I are always debating about whether the next Xbox PlayStation is gonna be, you know, next year, twenty twenty? Yeah. I still think it's 2020 and everyone's reporting 2020. However, I did tell you my one conceit, my one concession was that the, the one reason PlayStation would push up is if they say, we already know the following generation and that's going to be the big jump of the merger between consoles and computers, but we're not ready and we can't get that out by 2020. So let's do our final old fashioned traditional console and get that out as soon as possible with better hardware. And that would be the reason to push it up to 2019 so they can accelerate to whatever's after the PlayStation 5 and make the big leap. But Nintendo's already avoiding that entire. That's the thing. I mean, Nintendo... Well,
1: they'll make make an intergenerational uh, switch just like they did the 3DSs. Mm -hmm. They made the the new 3DSs, which had the upgraded processor, upgraded battery life, bigger unit.
0: Yeah. I mean, Sega was the rock star and... Nintendo was the jazz musician. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Rock stars, they burn bright, and then they die of a drug overdose when they're 30 years old. Yeah. Herbie Hancock's still playing. He's like 89.
1: (laughs) Except except for Ozzy. I don't know how that man's still alive, but...
0: Yeah, but, you know, jazz musicians, uh, you know, uh, and even in the end, they get paid. I mean, fucking Herbie Hancock gets paid like a million dollars per performance to go all around the world, you know? And even if not, you're respected for being a great musician and and they play for 60, 70, 80 years and, you know, putting out real art, you know? Rock is very, and that was, you know, I guess maybe we should end with the Mario Sonic thing, which we never talked about, which is,
1: it really Going to the Olympic Games? What's that? Going to the Olympic Games? No. no i'm saying that'll be that'll be a fun conversation in two years
0: though no reading the book going into it i was like oh, there's going to be so many like metaphors about mario and sonic but the reality is they do really represent what the companies were about oh yeah
1: 100 percent.
0: and that's the tortoise in hare, right mario even when he's you know on super speed or whatever i don't know the recent mario games he probably can do a lot more stuff but you know mario was never meant to run fast it was all, he was all about slow exploration, more nuance. You know, Sonic was just speed, 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 speed and that's what, that's what Sega did. They just ran and ran and ran until they hit the wall. And yep. Mario climbed over the wall or went under the wall, you know what I mean? Or found a way through it. And, and I think... That,
1: Sega hit the wall so hard, it took six fans. They had to hire six fans of their games to make a real Sonic game today. That's how badly they hit the wall.
0: And they were getting, like, all the big teen celebrities on tours. I mean, they... That's the thing. Kalinske knew... Kalinske was a great salesman. But I I will continue to stress that if Sing of Japan had just done a little bit more what Kalinske was asking for, they were going to hit that wall because they were more flash than substance. But the wall would have happened much later. Like... Sega would have made it into the early 2000s and then would have failed as opposed to failing after, what, three years, four years of dominance? I mean, I remember I was already in high school or almost high school then and, like, I didn't really care. But, like, I just remember, like, one day no one was talking about Sega anymore. You know, it was just, like, the guy who disappeared and no one knows. Sega,
1: the the, the very thing that Sega was trying to avoid, which was Mm -hmm. to prevent the video game industry from being a fad, Mm -hmm. they ended up being the fad. Mm Mm-hmm. So,
0: Yep. I do want to point out, though, that Sega has sold more than the Xbox One, the Xbox, the GameCube, the Wii U. But then it's pretty pathetic yep. after that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, all the top-selling systems, man, other than it's PlayStations and, and Nintendo portable units. I mean, Microsoft is green on this chart. Sony is purple and Nintendo's red. It is all purple and red. I mean, Microsoft has the Xbox 360. And literally, the Xbox One is 20 spots down from the top. 20 spots.
1: Yep. Yep. Yep.
0: All right, so final question. We've done all this Nintendo talk, Sega. eh, We've we've talked plenty of Sony in the past. Um, I'd like to end on something related. So where does Microsoft go from here? Because PlayStation in the traditional console market is kicking their fucking asses.
1: Uh, So step number one is they need to be the first one to jump to PC. 100%. Hundred percent. They need to bring their exclusives to PC. Yep. They will make so much money if they if they bring their exclusives if they make a successful ports of their games, especially the Halo franchise. Mm-hmm. If they bring their the Halo franchise to PC with unlimited frames and all the other beautiful things about PC, they will make so much money. It's not even it's like it's not even a joke how much money they'll make. In addition, they won't have to do anything because they already have a platform. That they could sell their games on, and they won't have to worry about Steam taking forty percent of their profits. Like they are good to go. Like, at like update the Microsoft Store a little bit. Like maybe bring an Xbox launcher to PC. Mm-hmm. Not it's not this complicated to do. They just got to spend some time making it and a little bit of money, mm-hmm. a little bit of elbow grease. They will make so much money. That's the first thing they got to do. Like if, if they want if they want to like like make it, it like it's it's out there they, they want to make money they can do it like it'll be done um so that's something they can do the other thing they have to do is they have to come out swing next generation they have to come out swinging and i have no idea how they're going to do that because their next halo game is for this generation supposedly the next uh the next gears game for this generation the next forza game for this generation and that's their three biggest titles right there yeah. So I mean, unless, yeah. unless 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 and we happy few isn't doing so great right now, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of their exclusives for their for one of the developers that they that they bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they gotta they gotta either buy more developers and make more games, mm-hmm. or they gotta make some new IPs that are really good. Because I mean, I think what's getting lost in the shuffle, you
0: know, I praise all the third party studios that get under Sony's umbrella is that it's not just that they're making good games. You know the saying, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yep. Because like, look. We're never going to compete against Microsoft in the computer market. We've got nothing. We, you know, briefly had like laptops. Like that's it. You know, we're never going to compete in the computer market. We have to corner th- this type of console. So we are going to design games specifically for our controllers, right? And let's be honest: the PlayStation controller in four generations has had baby steps to get to where it is now, where it's almost perfected for what it is, right?
1: Uh, I, I would say it is perfect. I would say yeah. it is the best controller, and and with the. With the what's it called the new the new um the new pro controller coming out for the PS4, mm-hmm. so good. Like
0: and but, but so you good. know what I'm saying, like like yeah. You, you, no, you I could agree. you could design a version of Horizon or New God of War for a computer for sure, but it's optimized for the PlayStation
1: experience. Right, that's what right. they're doing so well. It's optimized for the PlayStation experience. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing is they don't have to do it. Sony is in such a good position. They don't have to do anything. That's the thing. As long as Sony keeps pumping out games and and has a fistful of games ready for their next launch and doesn't sleep on anything in case Microsoft does decide to do something, they'll be fine. Sony Sony has proven themselves with this generation, and they don't have to do they don't have to do anything. They have let, let, let's let's run it down. They have the best shooting experience. They have the best RPG J, RPG and JRPG experience. They have the best story experience and they had debatably and, and they and they have the biggest populace, which reinforces all of their multiplayer games. They don't have to do anything, anything. Hmm. And the best visual experience for console, they don't have to do anything. So long as so long as those five things do not change, Sony doesn't have to do anything.
0: Yeah, it seems like... It's interesting, man. It, it, you know what? <laughs> with, with Nintendo going their own way, Microsoft maybe going back to where they belong with computers, and, and Sony perfecting the console to the extent that it can be perfected, it's almost inviting more players at this
1: point, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now. Th- listen, that thing can easily change. That whole system can easily change. Microsoft just has to make a good marketing campaign to, to people that are not Americans because... Xbox only sells well in America. Mm-hmm. Um, they, have to, they have to sell units in not America, and they have to make a system that is better in those five categories, with the exception of the population, because they can't change the population until it's better than what Sony has. Sure. Um, in, in those four categories that I mentioned, if they make a better product in all regards, mm-hmm. people will come. But like at the the minute, Sony locked down the thirteen year. Call of Duty Activision deal was probably like the turning point, because that just tells you what Sony was willing to spend, and since Microsoft wasn't willing to spend that money, they immediately lost. Like they 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 already lo- they, that just means they lost the shooter market right there, which is the biggest, if not the second biggest market. And, and the other thing that doesn't get talked about is,
0: you know. We think there's a lot of corporate monopolies in this country, but we're actually less tolerant of monopolies in this country than a lot of other countries. Oh yes. Yeah.
1: Japan Japan the, the and the book talks about this. Yep. Japan is actually in, encourages monopolies because it it says like the yeah, it it wants the like the idea is that you were culturally respectful of the idea that since this person made it to the top and made a product or made a service or whatever, right. they made it to the top and they should own everything because that was their mm-hmm. ambition. Their but, ambition led them to that.
0: Yes, but this also applies to the average American consumer, which is a lot of Americans, like if you're a real capitalist, you like to spread your money around if you can. You don't go to the store and buy all the same brand. In some countries, conformity is you know, not only respected, but expected. Like, you know, not that people don't have brand loyalty, but what I'm saying is, you know... Everyone's already using Microsoft on every fucking computer, and so if Sony and Nintendo are putting out better consoles, people are going to give them the benefit of the doubt for sure over Microsoft, who they're already spending too much money and time on, as is in all aspects of their life. Right? You go go to work, you're on Windows. You go home, you're on Windows. You know now Windows they got their own tablets and the Surface and the blah blah blah, which is fine. You know Microsoft has gotten a lot better over the years. This is a criticism of Microsoft. What I'm saying is, you know the Xbox 360 is looking like a blip. I mean, you just look at the numbers, and I I, I agree with you. I think it would behoove Microsoft to not try and go head-to-head straight console with Sony in the next generation, and Nintendo's already avoided that, was sort of what I was getting to earlier
1: and Nintendo's a smart one at all this, mm-hmm. they just step out of the ring because they don't have, like, like just like Sony. Exactly. Like if Sony wins this next generation, they will be in the same spot as Nintendo where they can step out of the ring and not give a shit mm-hmm. because they will have already made it. Nintendo's made it. I think Nintendo is, like, the bar as far as, like, where you need to be as a gaming company. Like, Nintendo's at the point where they made it. They can just do whatever and they will be successful. Sony can do whatever right now and be successful, but that's not guaranteed in the future. They have to they have to maintain it to to get there. Um uh, word. I and 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 I like as someone who like has no brand loyalty per se. I I care about Nintendo. If I was to pick one, I'd say Nintendo, but I don't have a loyalty to any one of these three companies. Um if I was the it like the the guy who's leading Xbox right now. Uh Spencer. I think it is what it is last I forget his full name. But the guy who's leading Xbox right now, I actually have a lot of faith in him because he uh he wasn't the guy who launched with the Xbox One, but he's the one who has been very pro consumer about every decision midway through the Xbox One's life cycle. Yep. He's been responsible for that, or at least he's been at the helm for that. Mm-hmm. So if he if he makes the correct decision... Like I, if anyone's going to make the correct decisions for the launch of the next Xbox, it's him. So...
0: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think it's bad business practice at this point. I just think PlayStation made some good moves. When it looked like they were down they, with the PS3, they made they some They made good all moves. the right
1: moves. Yeah. <laughs> they made all the right moves, and Xbox made no moves. So.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. But, but uh-huh. yeah. The it, only
1: move Xbox has made is the mm-hmm. Xbox One X, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Like...
0: Yeah, and and look, the bottom line is name of the game is the game, and right now, when it comes to name of the game is the game, PlayStation's nailing it on the console, and
1: 100%. even even much more than Nintendo has because just because the PlayStation. Oh, that's 4 is why now, I wanted to end so on
0: that was the question I actually wanted to end on because that's more directly pertinent. and Then we'll really close out for now. Is obviously we're going to keep this discussion going as long as the our podcast and the you know awkward controllers and so forth goes on, um, uh, which is. Um, you know, Nintendo's clearly expanding their range of products available.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, like, the, the second year of the Switch has been phenomenal for the Switch. Yeah.
0: Right, right. But I'm saying the Nintendo seal of quality doesn't really exist anymore because there's so many third party games. And I'm not saying I mean, it's, it's a bad it's, thing.
1: It's all on No, it, it's, it's been that way since. I understand. I mean, it's all over their, right. their games.
0: No, I understand. I understand. But, you know. I hear there's more bugs on some of the games. They're expanding the store. All I'm saying is, you know, they are going more open source than they have before. Something Apple's never done. And surprises uh, me that Nintendo's doing it. Expanding the store so much. Or you don't think they are?
1: I mean... No, have you have you seen the, the litter and the, the disgusting that is the DS library?
0: I guess that's also just how you promote it, too. You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, there's all this crap in the DS library mm-hmm. that's, like, just not is a cheapo crap mm-hmm. that was like like oh i'm gonna i'm going to like like there are so many games in the ds library that were made under a year because that's how short and bad they are
0: i'm, I'm just like to, pure pure numbers
1: oh ds library has it but
0: no i understand that but the switch has only been out a year and change i'm saying pure numbers in the first year and change and now the you know I know Nintendo people are are the last to to embrace digital games, but at this point, people are buying a lot more games than ever before on digital store, even on the Switch. Yeah. 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 So so what I'm saying is, the inevitable trend is they have to open up and and have more stuff in digital store. But I'm saying the question I'm asking you is: assuming that continues, even if it's a slower rate, and they still have steel quality, whatever. You know, is there is there a breaking point? Let's be honest. Like they never used to have shooters; they would never have Dark Souls even fifteen years ago. Now they don't think twice about it, right? Do they lose their family friendliness, or do they just pump out so many Mario and Zelda products that they maintain the the Disney vibe, so people kind of ignore that they're also putting out like extremely violent games and so forth?
1: I think I I, I think they're matching trends, mm-hmm. and the the trend matching is that they they are embracing indie titles. That's the first thing mm-hmm. because. Indie titles are fantastic when you pick the right ones. Um, And because there's thousands of them and eventually 15 of the thousands will be good. Um, And two, uh, they're, they're they're matching trends because that's how they know they can stay, that they can make money because why would like one of the initial complaints with the switch was there's no library here. And they built, instead of, instead of pushing out their first party products, because they they were going to release their first party products when they felt like it had to be re- when it should be released, not when it had to, like, it should be released now. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Zelda launched with it just because they had to sell the unit some way. Right. But Mario Odyssey came out when Mario Odyssey was ready. Mm-hmm. I am Mario Odyssey could have taken another year for all I'm concerned, even though it looks like it's 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 so off it's so beautiful. Um. Uh. Like. Pokemon Switch took another year to develop, even though it's they're basically just reusing assets and pumping up the art style. For what reasons I don't know. We haven't seen the game yet, so there's the game is line in the background. We'll ha- we'll have to look at more closely. But they've they've taken they've, they've taken more time to make Pokemon Switch. It's been two years since the last like new Pokemon game quote unquote new Pokemon game. Um, and that's long for Pokemon because Pokemon usually does it every year. Uh, they like Nintendo takes its time with those sort of things, and so they're like, we got to put stuff in here. So they open it up, and maybe it's also just Nintendo's willingness to finally open up. Like, there's that too. Because well, like that, you said, that Star was Star sort of where I was going with the question. Never, yeah, Dark Souls would never, yeah. ever be on a Switch uh, on a Nintendo unit until they realize, like, like, well, this is like th- that. This is a popular game series, and it actually meets our ideals because graphic violence has been has been a serious issue before especially with like people being like ah, i played video games that influenced me to do my crazy murder spree no you're just you're just a murderer um and people have like accepted that and it's moved on and it's video game has started to transcend pop culture and so people are more willing to accept some of these crazier ideals for games and okay, this this game about me... Uh, the perfect example, this indie game that they showed off at E3, it's called My Friend Pedro, and it's literally a dude with a hockey mask on a skateboard going through and shooting a bunch of thugs. That would never be on a Nintendo system, but it's mm-hmm. also only on PC and only on the Nintendo Switch. Like, Nintendo, Nintendo's following the trend of just video games are popular now, and violence is, violence Of video games is definitely a conversation, but it's not quite the, the fearful thing that it once was.
0: Yeah, no, I'm convinced that Nintendo has made uh, you know, a, a- a reasonable decision that people are just accepting that, that, that this part of video games at this point, and that it's up to the parents to, you know, police their children and so forth. well. My bigger question was more about quality control of the games themselves, because there was a time when they made the majority of their own good games, and, mm-hmm. you know... E- with, with more variety, you, you lose control. It, it, yeah. uh, this isn't an insult. This is actually a compliment. I'm just asking you if you think, you know, they can sustain this delicate balance between letting some more people in and having a little bit less control. That's all I'm there's asking. Only,
1: there's only one game of awful quality I know of on the Switch store, and that's WWE uh, 18. Hmm. 2K 18. That's the only bad game I know of on the Switch because of how badly EA decided to optimize the game.
0: Hmm oh by the way the final story i loved the both written and impression portrayal of uh what was his name like trey or whatever the founder of ea the big oh, douchebag yes. that kalinsky just kept telling him to shut up and stop talking yeah. he's such a slea. they they illegally reverse engineered the genesis and then blackmailed them i was like yep. oh my god ea's really medieval from the beginning <laughs> Trip, yep. what was the name? He had one of those like oh.
1: Trey. Uh, it, was <laughs> yeah. it was something. Oh it something. Oh my was god! So, it's, it's, it's really funny to think about. Like, wait, it's because the guy who founded the company? You is must evil, have thought of or me or when you read was? that part,
0: right? You must have thought of all of our EA. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Oh man, fuck EA. Ugh. Fuck EA. Disney gets Star Wars out of their grubby hands already. God damn it. All right, buddy, this was great. Um I'm glad you finally read the book and I it's such a long book and there's so many stories, but at, at least we so, it, sorry, at least we have a a sort of a textbook of source material to work from as we continue this discussion in the future. Is the big so thing. So
1: now you have to read Blood Sweat picks. I, I just don't have money, but when, as soon as I get an Audible credit, I will. Can I can I can I send you my credit? Sure, because I have a credit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can I can use my credit for you. Oh, absolutely. It's, I'll for sure. You're gonna me. you're gonna love it. Do you want to know why? Because Schreier is a great writer. Schreier a great writer. Now the guy who does the voices isn't isn't fantastic. He's just adequate enough, in my opinion. But but he tells the stories of Uncharted, Dragon Age, Diablo, and um. What's the other one? Uh, some other one, but I, I I know you liked I know you liked the developer and the series, so you're gonna you're gonna love it. Awesome, you're gonna love it. It's uh, it it it's super enlightening, and just as a quick tease, the Stardew Valley story is so heartwarming. It's awesome. Word. Yeah,
0: I like him. I like his show. Uh, it uh, usually. Usually, like smarty pants podcasters can annoy me at times, but he's he's yeah. he's very relatable he's good i think
1: I, I think it's the funny voice that gets me just because it's like like you, you almost can't take up seriously until you do because of how much how smart he is
0: no see that actually works for me. I like when they're I like when uh, some of those hosts are a little goofy and awkward because there's nothing worse than someone who's super smart, but also like super good looking, super well-spoken, super perfect. You know what I mean? Like I I like my, I like my, whatever the field, I like my smart people, a little rough around the edges, just a little he's just a relatable guy. Like I said, he's like a nerdy, he feels like a nerdy Jewish guy. I went to camp with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, cool man. Well, this was great. I'm glad you read it. It's certainly very informative and, uh, like I said, I, I mean, did you agree with my initial statement? I said where I like as cool as like the the, actual, the main story was. It was really the anecdotes for me that made the book. All the little yeah. stories that we teased. So you guys go out there and definitely read or listen to Console Wars if you have any interest in not only video games but just in general and like how business works and you know what the culture of of this country was with entertainment and games and stuff in the early '90s. I mean, there's so much stuff going on. Uh, it was so ingrained. People forget. I mean, how important both mario and sonic were like people's identities in the early 90s is crazy
1: yep yep it's just super awesome to look back and see like just just knowing knowing what's happening behind the scenes Mm -hmm. is super enlightening because it it, you, you you like we will never like there are just some of those things that you can never know Mm -hmm. and this gives you like a brief insight into like what it truly meant Mm -hmm. for the men and women who were but like working behind the scenes here
0: and again i hate to say it sega of japan their best success was with an american at the helm and then they can't make a good Sonic game until they literally outsource it to non-Sega employees who make the only good Sonic game since the 90s. Sega <laughs> like can't, can't even succeed with their own product. It's unbelievable how incompetent they are. There have
1: been, there have been I think, two good Sonic games. I have to confirm this with Austin because Austin knows much more about Sonic than I do. There have been like two good Sonic games since Sonic 3. I think. And there's been like 14 released or something. Word up, man. All right, buddy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have to send you a link to this the, to this playlist because the Game Grumps play Sonic Boom on the 3DS and it was rushed for Christmas in like under a year. And it's just a perfect, it's like the most beautiful encapsulation of the game design of how not to game design mm-hmm. ever.
0: Yep. Well, again, you know, It's like, I was, what, 10, 11 when that stuff got popular. It was really fun for a year, and then I got my first PC and started playing Wolfenstein and fucking Warcraft, and I was good to go. So, (laughs) like, honestly, I've only come back to consoles because I'm just a a tired old man who wants to sit on my couch and play video games, you know? I've never really liked it, and I'll never really feel comfortable with a controller in my hand, honestly. I, I just... You know, it's it's just one yep. of those things. So I'm fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like someone will be able to figure out how to keep us on the couch, but get us better controls and better hardware somehow. So <laughs> yep. um, anyways, maybe you and I will be the ones to do it, man. Right. So um, yeah, who
1: knows? All
0: right. Heath, well, thank you very much. Um,
1: the Bizzle console. The
0: Bizzle, <laughs> the Bizzle console. I like it. Bizzle con. It,
1: it, it forcibly keeps you in the game and then you can't do anything else except listen to bizzlecast over and over again.
0: Oh my god, that's I mean, I do that because I'm obsessive about getting better with my podcast, but I would never ever wish that on anybody
1: else. Why did the creators do this? Because the one creator was a psychopath who wanted to have his torment shared with everyone. <laughs> I listen to me and only me. <laughs>
0: Um, all right, bud. This was great. Uh, we'll be back, guys, with um, uh, Awkward Controllers episode in a couple weeks. Anything else you want to say to the Bizzlecast listeners before I sign us out?
1: uh, 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 uh Destiny soon. Yay.
0: And with that a piece of useless information, the Bizzlecast is out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Roasted! Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. You, you're constantly... You're constantly setting me up for insulting Destiny. I don't want her to do it. Knock, knock. It's a knock,
1: knock. Oh. Oh. I told me, told me